0: So welcome. We're here on the Tokyo FinTech podcast, episode number three. My name is Norbert Gerke from Tokyo FinTech, and I'm here with Harumi urata Thompson, visiting from New York. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Norbert. When uh, you invited me to come to do the podcast, I was so happy to be. I mean, I, I was so happy about that. I'm happy to be here today. Thank you for inviting.
0: So, Harumi, you're coming to Tokyo twice a year, basically living in New York, and having you maybe good outside view on. On Japan why don't you share a bit of your impressions kind of from your visit what you see changing in the financial services industry in in Japan see do- during the last few visits
1: okay so I think I will talk about maybe um, blockchain uh, perspective because that's what brought us together to begin with so just a month ago two months ago I presented in New York about blockchain in Japan um, and uh, there I I talked about, amongst other things, how the industry is actually pretty much fully regulated now in Japan and that there are 17, no, actually 19, right? 19 uh, regulated exchanges in Japan. And that's all that are allowed to operate in uh, Japan, aside from the ones that are waiting to be fully regulated. I was kind of talking about that and a lawyer in America actually said, wow, you have so many regulated exchanges now. I actually envy your country because... The U.S. is so U.S. still hasn't decided what this asset actually is. So um, while I live in New York and deal with so many startup companies and um, um, kind of know to learn how people are visioning what what, what this uh, technology can do and where this can go, to certain respect, U.S. is much more advanced. But I guess to a certain extent, there are a lot of things that Americans haven't been able to experience yet so that they actually envy, to borrow his words, what is already happening in Japan. And I guess that comes from the fact that we are a little bit more obedient people uh, here in, the, in, the, in Japan. And if we're told to turn right, we kind of have a tendency to turn right. So that might be helping. Um, also, I guess it does help that uh, the government has decided very early on that we might have additional definitions coming later, but at least for the time being, this is a medium payment. So that really, I think, helped to organize the, the industry. Mm-hmm. So is this better or worse? I think we are yet to find out. Um, sometimes too early too much regulations that would deter the startup energy to go away, but sometimes having something solid to live on um, allows the industry to know what it is that they have to deal with and move forward. So I think we're yet to see how this is beneficial, but certainly there's a difference. And, and I think it's very interesting. So I'm uh, really kind of interested to co- continue monitoring what is going on in both markets.
0: So basically the view from New York, or say New York is aware of what's going in in Japan and seen in a positive light. So what else was kind of talked about at that that seminar?
1: I think the fact that FSA is trying to uh, make as much of what they are discussing and what they are thinking about as visible as possible by posting all the meeting minutes and things like that on their website. I think that's another thing that was actually wowed by them. Because right now, unless you go to talk to one of the lawyers, if you want to start some kind of blockchain company, especially in the fintech field, if you want to start a company relying on the lawyer that you work with is pretty much only the way that you are. you know that you are complying to whatever it is that they are trying to comply. Mm. So I think that was another aspect that was brought up during the presentation time.
0: Mm. And so you've been in the financial service industry for a long time in regulated markets, and so the see the adventures streak of the FSA in coming out with regulation very early, globally leading. In in fact, was a bit of an experiment and maybe unexpected, at least for me. Right? They were always very conservative. That's a matter like Your your experience. What were you thinking when you kind of saw them kind of venturing out?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And I wonder if there are no external factors mm. if the Japanese government decided to move so quick. And one of the unfortunate ex- external factors that I think helped the industry to move so much faster or the regulators to move so much faster is hacking, right? Uh, the Mt. Gox has been, uh, has hacked and got, what, $450 million mm. or so. And then the, followed by another $540 million. And then uh, another $50 million within the span of just one, two years of, uh, Mm -hmm. of all the known incidents. And I think that really kind of shook the people. And uh, this made a lot of people decide that regardless where we are going with this thing, I think we do have to make sure that we have some handle on this. And I think that partially, anyway, I think that really helped to move the regulators and general sort of startup community move forward with it. What I think is interesting, though, is that because of, I think, the not the initial factor, but one of the factors that I think influenced people to move faster here in this country. They're now talking about regulating certain aspects of technology as well, right? The wallet. Yeah. And that's something that I don't think anybody is really talking about around the world. And I love to see where this is going because now we are, we are not talking about the financial regulators trying to regulate the fintech aspect of the or the financial aspect of the fintech company but also trying to regulate a certain aspect of technology side of uh, this fintech development and who has the actual authority who actually has the expertise to do it that is something that really interests me and i will continue monitoring what they're going to decide Mm. to do with this
0: and I think we we've seen regulation or draft regulation coming out on security tokens, central digital securities, about a month ago. So it seems everybody's very excited about this, and we spoke about this on on this podcast a, a few weeks ago, um, which which obviously a big topic in the US as well. Comes back to what you said about where does the jurisdiction lie, etc. It seems 2019 will be very exciting year globally where where this whole topic will evolve and. By the by the end of the year maybe we have all some more clarity what to build and where to build it for the for the industry as a whole.
1: Yeah, no, I I do agree, and uh, I mean I know that the U.S. has its own problems. That at the federal level, there are like seven, eight, nine different uh, organizations, the, the the regulators that are competing, if you will, the jurisdiction over this thing. Uh, let alone at the state level, there are fifty states to begin with, and then each state has separate sort of functions that could regulate this aspect. Um, so the the U.S. has its really uh, its its own problem. And uh, we are beginning to see this so-called blockchain slash crypto-friendly nations, jurisdictions all over the world. And I know that for the time being, a lot of startup money and startup companies are kind of fleeing, if you will, to those jurisdictions. Even that I think we have a lot to kind of observe between now and then because just because it's friendly, it doesn't mean that a company owner can manage the company safely. That's a, that's a very different side of can we start the business easily? Yeah. But can we keep the business kind of more safely? The answer is yet to be seen. So I think, um, I think we're yet to see where really the so-called blockchain crypto-friendly nations really are going to be.
0: Yeah, and I think we we had Travis Kling from Ikigai Asset Management on our last episode, and we're talking about Binance, for example. And uh, I think his to quote him, his comment was, uh, if you're uh resident domiciled in malta and you've got the singaporean uh, wealth fund as your backer you can do certain things that other entities wouldn't be able to do and you you're resident in new york and you have probably the, the, one of the most restrictive mm-hmm. uh, regulations, yeah. right? With the New York Bitcoin Absolutely. license or crypto license. Obviously, it's one of the richest places on, on the planet. It's, exactly. I think if, mm-hmm. even if you look at traditional finance, yeah. uh, the bank branches yeah. that are in Manhattan have the, the highest assets basically on mm-hmm. the, on the balance sheet on average. So people want to be there, but at the same time, it's not that easy to do a crypto business in New York.
1: Absolutely. I mean, uh, the the investor's money is on one side and then the, the friendly regulation is on another. And I think that, I mean, you brought up a very good point about like New York being one of the most regulated place and the uh, people are starting a lot of businesses in Malta and whatnot. But eventually, if they really want to get the money worth, they would have to come to places like New York, at least as a, to have a sales representative of some kind. And at that time, I'm sure that they would have to comply to the regulations of the gear. Even just jurisdiction. So even if they can start easy, like in the places like Malta, I think everybody's going to have to, it's it's kind of like a security business, right? Cyber security too. If you think about, okay, you start some business somewhere, but you have to now comply to GDPR over Europe and whatnot. It's going to be the exactly same situation. So I do think that starting point is one thing where people end up is quite another.
0: Right. And so also in in the crypto space, and if you look at a digital currency or programmable money, we have kind of obviously a bifurcated view, right? We have the industrialized nations, and clearly you want to be ultimately in, in Japan, in the U.S., in New York. But we have institutions already that we kind of need to either bring on board or disintermediate, while. I say, more in the developing world where these institutions don't exist, maybe the bar for entry is, is lower mm. and the impact mm. in the short term could be much higher. And mm-hmm. so you're doing work in the Bahamas, and, yes. which is a very interesting kind of in that developing country yeah. context. Would you share a bit more about the work you're doing?
1: Absolutely. So a um, majority of the Caribbean nations are said to be either underbanked or unbanked. And uh, Bahamas has it's very unique problem that they can solve with having some kind of a digital payment system. And that is the nation is very, very archipelago country and uh, people who are living on some of the uh, remote nations, uh, they lost, Uh, They lost an access to the normal banking, so people who are living on those islands, they're unlucky, they might have to get themselves on the boat or fly in order to get to the nearby island that actually still has the banking system, which is very expensive, very time consuming. I mean, we're just talking about cashing the check or withdrawing the cash. And, uh, so, um, the central bank has took it, uh, into their own hands with the cu- current governor and they decided to provide a digital solution so that people do not have to continue operating under such unsustainable, um, environment. And, uh, I am helping them with the communication education aspect of blockchain. I do, I mean, they are aiming to come out with a solutions. So sometime 18 months to 24 months later, probably it's gonna take a little bit longer time. Having been in product management for a long time, I know that the, the the delivery of the solution always takes a little bit longer than you hope it to be, but that's what they're aiming right now. And towards the end of this year, early next year, they're already coming, to, coming out with a pilot program of a digital uh, a variation of sort of digital payment, just to see how it gets received, how it gets utilized. And uh, I was just there. About a month, a little less than a month ago to conduct a, um, a conference. And we were talking about the number of interesting problems that will rise with this kind of solution that will be rolled out. For example, are we going to start allowing uh, like a five year old smartphone? just so that they can have an access to the digital money i mean there are a lot of peripheral problems uh, not, not the problems the per- peripheral issues that we would have to resolve and, and that's going to be a really interesting one for me to continue monitoring so mm-hmm. i feel very lucky to be involved with this initiative
0: how many inhabitants are there in, in the bahamas
1: <laughs> very small <laughs> i mean so, some uh, <laughs> some uh, city has more population, population than the country so um that's that's another reason why I think that it, it might actually succeed because, um, you know, when the central authority, good or bad, um, has a control over to some big initiative like this and, uh, and delivering that in such a, for lack of better words, more sort of controlled environment. I think that that's more likely to see a successful result than Mm. some other places where a lot of people have different opinions and different needs. So I do think that actually having a very small population in this case is very helpful.
0: Yes, and so one one of the interesting topics out there, at least for me, is also central bank digital currencies, right? And it feels like if you have a smaller country, where as you say the the reserve bank basically yeah. has a much greater yeah. influence as to how to also shape the monetary system, it would be the ideal place to actually experiment with yeah. the central bank digital currency. I agree. But if that comes uh ultimately, what do you need a bank for anymore' yeah. a every inhabitant could have an account directly with the with the reserve bank with the central bank. And kind of operate from from there. Is that something that's being talked about in this context?
1: Yeah. So both of them, we are definitely talking about as we speak. Um, for the the digitalization of the currency itself, there are several different different ways to that we can go about. I mean, the one extreme way is ex- count exactly how much cash we have in a system today, and then almost like one to one conversion into digital, and then leave a little bit of actual paper money for the tourists <laughs> like <laughs> myself, right, who go there just for a week so we are not necessarily going to be able to have enough time to go through the uh, the diligent kyc that somebody's gonna to have to conduct for us for me to be able to get onto their the system yeah. so that's something I um, you know like a very sort of extreme one one to one sort of conversion where um, and then on the other side the cash continues uh, on the other extreme is cash continues to floating just as is and we just kind of create a little bit of digital money to help the remote people so I mean there are and in between these two extreme solutions there are several different ways that we can go mm-hmm. so in terms of digitalization we're definitely looking into what works the best and also like we are talking about um, how to control monetary policy once basically two different currencies start going around in the system so i mean we have to not only do something that is that makes sense from a technology perspective but as a nation what makes sense the most for them on the the role of the bank side i mean again you know sort of on one extreme side we can Actually consider an, a, a real sort of disintermediation of a bank altogether and we will not have any banks left of any kind. And then on the other side, the banks continue operating as they are and then we just roll out the, the blockchain from central bank perspective and there's no sort of cohabitance or coexistence between these two of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, likely this this latter uh, is not latter situation is not gonna happen, but the solution again is gonna be um lying somewhere in between these two extreme situations. I do believe though, because however small the country like the Bahamas may be, they still probably want somebody that they can go knock to say I want to make sure that everybody's abiding by some kind of compliance. And I need you to continue acting in that sort of role where you know all your clients. So probably the solution is going to be some variation of banks continue existing. And most of the people still have some kind of bank account. But the activities themselves would take a place in the digital sort of, that's probably where it's going. But we are definitely talking about what, again, makes the most sense for the country. Mm.
0: So that would be a future where the bank really is much more utility, even more utility than it's today already, which is very different from 10 years ago maybe. And so you're basically the KYC utility to make sure everybody has an ID, for example. It's not a very exciting future for the bank.
1: (laughs) Probably not. And then, you know, we we still don't know. But that's probably where the nice sort of medium solution lies. So that's probably where... Uh, a country or you know, any kind of organization that is going to roll out some solution like this is likely going to end up.
0: If I'm not mistaken, the US Federal Reserve essentially stopped reporting on money supply, right? So there's, yes. there's no M1, M2, M3 anymore. And c- clearly, if you have central bank digital currency, you have a real-time view into mm. what these numbers are. If you think and some people certainly believe that the money supply is hugely inflated, that's the reason they're not reporting it because it would actually show how much the whole economy is skewed. Then again, the truth would be much easier to surface if you had it all digitally and blockchain crypto recorded.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you're not bound by the number of paper thing that is yeah. out there, I mean, it's so much harder to just control it with a, the strict monetary policy. So I think every, not just the Federal Reserve, but I think every sort of central authority like central bank, I think it's coming to a point where even if they won't, they won't roll out a solution like blockchain digital payment solution. It's definitely, uh, it's de- they're definitely standing on the sort of uh, point where they need to kind of figure out what actually works better when. Everybody's spending the money on the credit card, and we we are having this uh, concept of fiat currency, and yeah, some people might have that actually, you know, might be already spending Bitcoin. Mm. in that sort of kind of environment, absolutely.
0: Let's leave fintech for a moment because there seems to be a fascination with space, and it's almost <laughs> like when we come back to the kind of the women in fintech topic. Yeah. But me personally, and maybe it's just an, an arbitrary selection, but it feels like I know more Japanese women in space industry than I know Japanese women in fintech, and you're one of them. You have oh. your you have your own uh, space venture, and so two-part questions like how come there's this fascination with space and what are you doing specifically?
1: Okay so the first question uh, why the the fascination with the space? I mean who when they were little children didn't look up the sky and start counting the stars out there or watch I mean when we were still having the man mission or people mission we were flying the rockets out there um saying that I want to be just like that person over there who doesn't have the fascination with it, right? And it's like we are always a little bit afraid and a little bit excited of the unknowns and space is the ultimate unknowns. And if you think about one of those like you know hugely grossing movies of late and Star Wars, Star Trek, that that I think is a really proof of how we get fascinated with something that we don't really know. But it's, it seems so close, so, but it looks so far. So I think that really is where the fascination comes from. In terms of my involvement with the space business is that I actually, in a couple of different ways. So I am an advisor. For a organization, basically an accelerator program in an education institution called New York Space Alliance. as a part of serving for them as an advisor, I was asked to speak to a couple of companies that are on their accelerator program to see what they need to be thinking about operationally, where they might be able to go to raise capitals and things like that. As I was speaking to one of them, we as as a result of that, we realized that I realized that there was there's this humongous amount of data that has accumulated since the uh, foundation of International Space Station, where a lot of astronauts mm-hmm. and private entities that are in some kind of science field have been flying their research to, uh, since the beginning of 90s and have accumulated so much research findings, results in the database. But nobody's really leveraging that data. And how long has it been since when we began to say data is currency, data is gold? And here you we are, we're talking about 21st century data use and space exploration, and we're not using data at all? That seemed unreal. So the person whom, whom I was speaking to at the time and decided to see what might be possible Using this data, which ultimately became the company Celestial Data, and essentially this is a company that kind of resides in between science, analytics, and the space industry mm-hmm. uh, company.
0: I mean, I think you were mentioning that you basically have a, a team that's spread across New York and Brazil, yes. for example, and so you're in the, in the Western Hemisphere with it, but also it's a, it's a global global yes. team. Yeah, and maybe maybe some comments around how how that's working. Absolutely. Right? Or a global yep. space venture at the global global scale internationally yep. distributed
1: so i think i think the you know the, the global fascination of space i mean ev- like i said earlier um everybody looked at the stars and wondered what's beyond our planet everybody to a certain degree most of the people anyway i think are fascinated with the space business so when I talk about me getting involved in a space business, um, more or less, and you know, I get the same sort of reaction from the people. Wow, how did you get into it? That's so exciting, right? I mean, even without talking about what my company actually does. So um, I think having a company that is global in one way or another, whether it's an international business or just a starting up today. I don't necessarily think that it's that difficult if you're looking for certain talent or certain type of um, uh, interest to, to find people anywhere. So my co-founder is a Brazilian. Uh, he's based in uh, Sao Sa- 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 Paulo. And he's a really sort of space person. He's a space engineer. He has a master's degree in space engineering. Yes, there's such master's. And I'm a business management person. So when we met, it was almost like a match made in heaven. Uh, you know, sorry for using the cliche, but that was, that's really it. And that also helps when we are talking to potential investors that I'm a business manager. He's a space engineer person and they're like, Oh, okay. So you really have a balanced Mm -hmm. team. So our business model, our company's business model, that the very start that probably most of the people when we have the, the available solution. Um, probably the entry point is gonna be to have an access to the, the, the data, research, uh, articles written on the space business, uh, things like that. But our business goes much beyond just using that kind of science analytics field. And if people, if the institutions want to fly their own research down the line as well, we actually have the way to uh, work out these logistics for the institutions too. And our partner company that would actually fly the experiments to the International Space Station is here in Japan. So, um I think you can really say that, yes, I mean, uh, me, myself, and my co-founder on, are in the he- Western Hemisphere, but our partner company is here in Japan, and so it is a truly global company in right. that sense. Also, if you think about where the NASA-like organizations reside, obviously, everybody knows NASA, that's in the U.S., but Japan has JAXA, and the International Space Station is currently utilized also by Russia, Canada, and Europe, so uh, this is a truly, truly, it's science at the end of the day. So it's a truly, truly global business.
0: Fascinating. Thank you. Um, So let me walk us back to kind of fintech and the, the women in fintech topic. So you've been the first female on the fixed income desk here at Morgan Stanley in Tokyo when you started your career. So you have a good perspective as to what the environment was a while ago and how it has changed or it hasn't changed. And it seems like in that cross-section of finance and technology, there's still a lack of role models really for girls that grow up now and and look at what what they want to become. How do you see that? What can we do to change it and what are you, which initiatives are you involved with to close yourself more as a role model so that girls growing up have something to aspire to?
1: Absolutely. So unfortunately, I think, I mean, it is absolutely true. And I do not believe that it's changed that much since when I was in the investment banking. Are there more women? I'm sure. But um, so there's a, first of all, on the finance side, not, not even touching on the technology side. I mean, on the finance side, when you look up the management level people at any given uh, investment bankings, banks, even insurance companies. Let's let's be real I and mean, then look at all the executives that we have at most of the companies. I challenge you to name me 20% at least the 20% women or minorities of any kind at any given companies you probably would be uh, you would have to probably think very very hard to come up with a company that has maybe two or three different people uh, aside from the male or a white caucasian male depending on right. where you are sending so, literal on like you know, 20% 25% right you know we are already beginning to see the not the result sort of enough evidence to show that if the if our board of a company has at least three female That company is likely to be more profitable than the companies that have all-male board. So why is it that we can't promote that kind of more diverse culture. The problem lies that, first of all, if you force women or minority people to take a higher seat when they're not ready, likelihood of, unfortunately, uh, these people kind of not reaching to the capacity, of the, the, the potential capacity is very high. So they kind of drop out at some point and people would criticize, oh, because women or minority people are not fit to manage. That's not true. It's just that it wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Quite their time yet, and then also when you are looking up and then you don't feel like there's somebody that you can easily go up to and talk to, it becomes very hard to find a mentor within the industry, uh, institution, wherever it might be, and it kind of really discourages you to get go into the field. I mean, when I was. Working for my first company, as you mentioned, I mean, I, it was a very tough environment for me because I couldn't go and consult about some of the problems that I was having. And some of the problems are straight up sexual harassment type of issues. Mm-hmm. And it's not it's nothing like and I could go and talk to a white male. You know, um, my, my clients are really harassing me. What am I supposed to do? It was, it, it was too embarrassing to do it. So when you have to, you are forced to work in that kind of environment, how can you expect any different people, like minority people, women to stay in the field, right? So I, I that's, I think, why I don't necessarily think that the minority's presence in the finance field has changed all that much since when I was there. And in terms of technology, even in some place like the U.S., I understand that the girls, female, going into college and majoring in STEM, the percentage just a couple of years ago was only 3% or so Mm -hmm. of all the STEM field. And when only three out of 100 people are going into that field, and then when you are only 16, 17, and start thinking about what do I want to study in college, you probably naturally have a tend, you have a natural tendency to go with, oh, I want to be with my friends. I want to look like, I want to be like everybody else. So I'm not going to go into the STEM field. That is a very, very easy decision to make, especially when you're young and there's a peer pressure, right? So we really need to change. And then also, of course, there's a built-in bias where, um, I understand in, in today's day, today's, and today's world still, we are, we have a lot of like parents when the girls ask for, say, like, you know, truck toys or something, right? And the, the, the moms, dads are like, well, no, here's your Barbie. Play with your Barbie. In that kind of environment, how can we expect the girls to grow up and like more mechanic stuff? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are a number of different reasons. That we have a shortage of labor or people who are not necessarily going to STEM or, you know, for, the, on, for that matter. What I do in order to encourage minority people and women to come into a different field is, first of all, I do get in front of a lot of people and talk about, not just about the technologies and straight up technology topics and things like that, but I do a lot of career development kind of talk as Mm -hmm. well. And I said, look at me, I'm an Asian female working in New York and I started out as an investment banker. What do you think I went through? You know, and then I think Something like that really re- seems to resonate with some of the people, as well as I work very much, uh, very often work as a mentor for some of the women-focused organizations so that I can say, you know, just just forget about what people are telling you or what you were taught when you were growing up. I got to be where I am because I didn't accept it a lot of people's advice. Um, I didn't necessarily take them to-, to-, to grow up. I mean, I didn't necessarily just concede to what people are telling me. If I didn't think that what people were saying was right, I thanked for the opinions and then I just moved on. It was something that I couldn't fight, finding an easier way, or maybe sometimes I took the challenge heads on, whatever the case might be. I, I had to, I had to do a lot of different things to walk around, move through, whatever it might be, but I really shared those kind of experiences with people and some people understand, some people don't, but by some people who are talking about this and sharing experiences and not just kind of saying, oh, I did this, I did this, and then I am an executive of this company, but kind of by normalizing the experience, saying that, these are the things that you can think about. These are the things that you need to be building. I think that some people can walk away with the actionable, actionable actions, for lack of better words. So that's something that I'm very mindful of doing whenever I have a chance to talk about career development or work with the young, pe- young women uh, minorities that are thinking about getting into different fields, and uh, encourage them to to end up where they want to be. Mm. So in terms
0: of this the STEM field, we've got organizations like Girls Who Code mm-hmm. in the US, for example, which is a nonprofit. And yeah. if I have it right, then one of the key performance indicators to measure their their own success is how many participants in their program which targets like high school yes. girls are actually going to university in a STEM topic, right? And Uh, There's an organization in Japan, there's Canvas, that uh, I think does something similar, although it's not Mm. gender-specific. They're pushing computer programming and and technical skills into the schools. And we we talked about kind of the FSA and the leading role, Mm. it seems like in terms of education, in 2020, coding will become compulsory in Japanese schools. And hopefully that provides a bit of a level set because the whole class, obviously, right? Male, female, boys, girls have to take that Mm -hmm. topic. Mm -hmm. And if you like it, even as a girl, uh, you're maybe not sticking out that much and you can be good at it and, and pursue that maybe more liberally without kind of negative peer pressure that maybe exists today. But it feels like a really good step, maybe globally leading to make computer programming compulsory in, in school.
1: Yeah, no, uh, and then that, that's, I think, a great direction where we are going. And, you know, one of the things that I think we need to remember is that coding, because we kind of like put it under the bucket of coding, programming, STEM, um, some of the people might have a little bit resistance when it comes to, oh, you're going to be taking programming from tomorrow. But it's just another language. It's like, just like English is a mandatory for most of the non-English speakers when they're growing up from maybe the, the latter years of elementary school to kind of junior mm. high school years. Everybody has to start taking English. Programming is just another language now that instead of talking with your mouse, you might be typing into the computer. And uh, while I can't, you know, program some really complicated language like C++, I actually did learn HTML. And it's very much like speaking English mm-hmm. of all, uh, almost. So um, I think that's something that that needs to be communicated upfront. It has nothing to, well, I shouldn't say it has nothing to do with STEM, but it, it, it's it's a language it's just a form of language and so people don't feel like oh they're getting in i'm getting into stem and start feeling the resistance automatically
0: I think that's a very interesting comparison it's like if you if you want to express yourself in any language you you always have the process of, decomposition and composition, right? So you need to assemble your thoughts Mm -hmm. first. You need to take a problem, break it down into the pieces and then kind of put it together again to communicate it clearly. And in a way, that's maybe the science part of the, the computer programming is you can't just go and sit down and start coding. You need to kind of understand the problem, break it down into the executable pieces. So it's also, in my mind, a very good logic training as as such, right? And so those skills, whether you become a software engineer at the end of the day Mm -hmm. or not, kind of that skill of logical thinking and, and so on is helpful for many domains and kind of business
1: roles. I can't agree more. And then, if you're interested in starting a business later, and then if you can design your own website instead of outsourcing it to marketing company of some kind, how much more meaningful can you make a website right. to be, right? And then something like HTML comes very, very useful. So um, it's just a part of how to make a living, almost. So um, yeah, that, that's that's a really good uh, thoughts that you're bringing up. Cool.
0: So wonderful, wonderful to have you here, and we see you generally every six months <laughs> when you come back to Japan. I had one question to conclude, and I think if I look at your LinkedIn profile, you have that photo with yourself oh, on yeah. the NASDAQ market site. So you're the only person I know <laughs> who's ever been, <laughs> basically,
1: uh,
0: at, at Times Square up there. So what's the background for that?
1: Oh, yes. So that's actually a part of the diversity and inclusion move, too. In my previous position, the last the Corporate USA position that I have had. Um, Amongst other things, I was very active with the veterans community. Um, They are also, you know, just like any other, so diversity and inclusion, it's not just about gender or ethnicity. Mm -hmm. It's also about experience or thoughts or, you know, everything else and putting the veterans back out of the military and then back into the civilians world into one of those industries that we are in. um, That's a that's a huge undertake for anyone because they have had such a different life up until now. In my previous capacity, I was uh, doing um, whatever I can to try to help that community. So um, Nasdaq has given a group of us the uh, the one day um, the, the closing bell, and that's how I got uh, myself uh, on that screen. <laughs> <laughs>
0: very good. For the most interesting uh, link, LinkedIn picture that, that you can. <laughs> thank have. you. Right? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so no, thanks you for thank you for being on the show. It Was thank very good to see me. you again in in Tokyo, and we can take another checkpoint in six months and see how, how things developed in New York and Tokyo.
1: That would be great. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this talk today.
0: Thank you. And it's Norbert Geke from Tokyo Fintech. We're signing off today from Shinjuku in Tokyo. Watch out for our next episode.